often. Faith becomes more about who is in and who is out or about who belongs and who does not. But in order for spirituality to be good for anyone, it has to be good for everyone. In this podcast, we find incredible people using their faith and life as a catalyst for goodness in this world. Be inspired to discover your own goodness in order to make your life, your family, your community, and your world better. Hey friends, great to be with you today. I'm Matt Kinzera, host of the Chasing Goodness podcast, and I am going to keep this intro short because I am so excited about this interview. Today I sit down with my friend Raj Patel, and Raj is passionate, and I mean extremely passionate, about finding ways to eliminate hunger from our world. He recently produced a documentary called The Ants and the Grasshopper, which we're going to talk all about. He is somebody that cares a great deal about how we're treating our bodies, how we're treating our community, how we're treating our world, so we're going to talk about climate change. We're going to talk about hunger. We're going to talk about faith and how that plays a role into this. And we're also, and I'm totally serious about this, going to talk for a little bit about why many people in this world actually think that Raj is the second coming of the savior of the world. So no further ado, here's Raj Patel. Well, Raj, it is great to be with you. Thank you for joining the Chasing Goodness podcast. Now, you know, I show who's going to be on the episode and people hop on and they see the name Raj Patel. And before they click play, they're going to want to know who this guy is. And so they may, I feel like we've got to get this out of the way, just like right at the top. They may come across some websites, some information about you being the second coming of the savior of the world. So I feel like we've got to just like get that out of the way before we get into the important stuff. Where did that ever come from? Well, Matt, of course, I, I knew that you were going to say that, uh, being omniscient. The, the story is this. I was on a book tour in 2010, uh, and it, it turns out uh, that there was a prophecy about a man born in 1979 who flew from India to London uh, and who stutters uh, and carries a water bottle with him everywhere and does half a dozen other things that I also do. And the prophecy was that on this particular night, this man would appear on American television and this man would be the Maitreya, the world teacher, the second coming. So I was on the Colbert Report uh, of all places. uh, And you would think, yeah, no, if the Messiah was going to pop his head out, he'd pick a different show. But that was the one. Uh, and all of a sudden, there were a bunch of people who had read this prophecy and um, decided that, that I was that guy. So just to, to clear everything up, I'm not that guy. But it's a pleasure to talk to you anyway. Yeah, well, good. I don't, I don't need you to be the savior of the world to want to hang out and well, talk relief, with you. Because right? you know, those expectations, they weigh very heavy. Yeah, I feel like maybe you're more approachable if you're not the savior of the world. And for those people who are just wildly confused right now, I mean, this is totally serious. But we're not here to talk about that because Raj is, is becoming a, a good friend of mine because our hearts are very similar and our desires for this world are very similar. And so before we jump into your work, Raj, just explain a b- little bit about who you actually are, which again, is not the savior of the world, but this pretty incredible human being. So just give us a little 30,000 foot view of who Raj Patel is. You're too kind. Essentially, I'm someone who doesn't like hunger and has spent quite a lot of his life trying to make it go away. Uh, So I started when I was five uh, and uh, I I was in India, the land of my ancestors. uh, And I saw a small, like a 12 year old begging at the side of the road. And she had this infant in her arms 
And you know, we were inside a car in the middle of the monsoon. And so you know, got these you know, sort of tin-roofed Indian cars, and the monsoon was hammering down. And this girl was sort of keening outside the window saying, I'm hungry, I'm this baby needs food, I need food. And I lost you know, I, I lost my mind. I got very upset uh, and I made my parents give money and uh, you know, we drove off. And then when we got back to London, I started renting out toys to get money for famine relief. And so that kind of work is the work that I've been doing since I was five. But it's taken me in places from, um, you know, charities to the World Bank and the World Trade Organization, uh, United Nations. And now I do a lot of grassroots work with anti-hunger groups around the world to make hunger go away. That's that's the thing that upsets me the most and the thing that I feel like I, I ought to be able to do much more about than I can. I love that story, Raj. And the part of the reason that I love it is because your passion to fight against hunger, it started when you were a little kid and you hear kind of overtones of that in a lot of people's stories. But I love that this has been a passion of yours. It's not a career. It's not this thing that you do now. It's, it's something that's always been in you. I love that about your story. I do consider myself blessed in that way that um, I've never wondered what I do for a living. Yeah, I mean, I've, I've wondered how I'm going to pay the bills, but I've never wondered what it's for. And I've, you know, that that that's, that has been a great gift. I've I've never fumbled around to figure out what my career was. I fumbled around trying to figure out what what the best way is to end hunger, and that's been the journey of dead ends and not regret, but of learning and of experiments that don't go right. But I, I feel like there are fewer mistakes in the laboratory of, of my life's experiments uh, and more successes these days. Now, Raj, if you don't mind me asking, because this is a podcast where we do dive into a lot of faith issues, do you have any sort of faith connection, any beliefs, whether it's something you grew up in, whether it's something you adhere to now? I was raised Hindu. And I, I think that there's something really important about an understanding of the world that is that recognizes the value of all life. Uh, and the problem with Hinduism, the more I you know, researched it and tried to find ways in which I could find myself in it, uh, the more I saw hierarchy and disconnection and structures of oppression. The rest of my family are very devout Hindus, uh, and I have broken with them on that. But you know, the, the, the kinds of places that I find myself are, are cosmologies in which there's radical equality. And so while I don't subscribe to any particular faith, I do increasingly find that the, you know, the, the places spiritually that I find myself are ones where there is a certain kind of radical equality, not just between humans, but between humans and the rest of the web of life. Uh, it's not quite pantheism. It's much more of a sort of grounded practice of understanding that I am because of the beings that are in and around me. And that sort of reciprocality, that idea of mutual love and care is something that you can find in a lot of indigenous traditions, but you know, are also in, in certain kinds of interpretations of Buddhism uh, and certain actually in interpretations of Christianity, I'm led to believe. So I, I do think that there are faiths that I, I certainly resonate with far more than the ones I was you know, brought up in, which unfortunately was one that was mired by patriarchy. I mean, it still worries me a great deal that there are things that my son can do in, in Hinduism that my daughter will never be invited to. And that's, that's a problem for me. And I, I, I don't particularly care for that. Yeah. I'm sure it's fascinating. Now, the vast majority of people that listen to this podcast, they're from a lot of different backgrounds, but I don't know the exact numbers, but the vast majority would consider themselves as Christian in some way, shape or form. And the way that you talked about Hinduism, some of the things that you struggle with, 
I would assume that almost everybody who listens to this show has had the same conversations about Christianity. So isn't it interesting where we'll see some of these same challenges across many of the different world religions? And I think a lot of us are trying to do the hard work of being a part of a faith or a belief system that's inclusive, where everybody gets to be a part. I too am the the father of daughters and the idea of my kids not getting the same opportunity as somebody else's kids. I also have kids who are in the, you know, LGBTQ plus community. So that as well, you know, keeps putting them farther down the totem pole in the faith tradition that I grew up with. And so I just think it's fascinating. And I'm sure a lot of listeners are going to be interested to hear that. Here's Raj talking about Hinduism in the exact same way that we've had so many conversations about Christianity. But for me, I, you know, the kinds of traditions of Christianity that do make sense to me are things like liberation theology and, uh, you know, in general, things that Franciscans do, I tend to, to think are fantastic. But it's very interesting for me that, that there isn't a liberation Hinduism. Uh, for folk mm. who have been the most oppressed by Hinduism, the way to fight that is, is actually Buddhism, is, is to just leave Hinduism behind and become Buddhist. And that, I think, tells a lot about the prospects for change in Hinduism in a way that's very different from, I think, the, the kinds of work that you're doing in Christianity. So I, I you know, I, I'm, I'm ready to be schooled by someone who's ready to come along and say, no, there is liberation Hinduism and it looks like this, but I haven't seen it. I've been looking. Yeah, I agree with you. Like in some other life, I'm a Franciscan monk. I couldn't actually do it, but in my mind, it sounds so wonderful. And I grew up Catholic. And so that was a, a bit of the tradition that I grew up in as well with the, the saints and St. Francis and whatnot. And, and like in my mind, that seems perfect, but the way they lived, mm, there's no way I could actually do it. But, a commitment there, isn't <laughs> Yes, in theory, in theory, it's wonderful. Raj, I ran into you because you produced this wonderful documentary called The Ants and the Grasshopper. Share with us a little bit about what that documentary is about. Maybe it'd help just to give a little bit of uh, the context for why it happened, right? So I do a lot of food activism and through the, you know, the first sort of 10, 15 years of, of the century, I was in other people's documentaries as a, as a sort of wonk saying, oh yes, no, th things are quite bad in the food system. But often in the documentaries that appeared about the food system, working class families and families of people of color were just there to suffer, right? The, 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 their suffering would be documented and then it would be someone with a posh voice like me saying, oh yes, no, things are bad. Uh, and then at the end, uh, we'd see a bunch of sort of middle-class people in farmer's markets and we'd have jangly guitar music and it would be like a revival. We were gonna save the world by buying organic kale. Now, I love organic kale. It's terrific. But uh, and I love the, jangly guitar I, music. So, you know, we all have our, our hills to climb. Uh, but, um, you know, when it comes to what, what are the big solutions that we need to adopt to be able to, to really be able to change the world? Maybe going Franciscan isn't the answer for all of us, but there are things that we can do that are bigger than we are permitted to think. You know, we can do more than just shop better. And we never get to see that in a documentary. So that's why I was lucky enough to you know, start this project with a guy called Steve James, uh, who did a, a magical documentary called Hoop Dreams. And Steve and I started filming this 10 years ago. In the end, Steve had to drop out, but his protege, Zach, uh, and I, Zach Piper, and I uh, finished this over the course of 10 years. And we filmed a, a woman leading a community in Malawi that ends childhood malnutrition 
by not just growing organic food and a variety of organic food, but also by confronting inequality and particularly gender inequality in the home. And the way she does it is something that was utterly new to me. She turned the Bible into a tool for radical equality. So, you know, there's a scene in the film where our hero, Anita Chitaya is her name. Anita uh, is talking to a a chauvinist and uh, trying to persuade him that his, his wife needs to be treated with dignity. And she, you know, she talks about Genesis and about how in Genesis, you know, God created woman as a helper. And how can you let your helper suffer so much? And she, you know, she turns the Bible and sort of ninja theology uh, into, a, a, you know, the Old Testament radical equality. And I you know, I'd not heard that before. But when she, when Anita was saying, look, what we need to do now is now that we've tackled, you know, gender inequality and hunger, our big problem is climate change. We said, well, do you want to come to America? And she goes, yes, I need to come to America to persuade Americans that climate change is worth taking seriously, because I've, I've heard you aren't taking it seriously. So her journey in this film is from Malawi to the United States, where she uses the same kinds of ninja theology to persuade Americans that climate change is real. And you know, we follow her journey and her successes and her failures uh, over the course of that journey and, and then her return back to Malawi. How did you originally meet Anita? I've been working in Northern, well, with the, this organization in Northern Malawi for a few years. I, I myself have lived in, in Southern Africa for, for, for a good long while. Um, I did some research in Zimbabwe and, and South Africa. And so Malawi is close by, for those of you who don't, uh, not entirely familiar with the map of, of Southern Africa. Malawi is a sort of landlocked uh, country about, oh, I don't know, three quarters of the way down in the middle of, of the peninsula. If you imagine Africa's a sort of big triangle, it's, it's sort of near the bottom, but, but landlocked inside. Uh, and it was close to where I was working. I'd gone to graduate school with one of the founders. And then I met Anita when Steve and I were there filming for the first time. And we announced to the village that we were here from America to tell their story. Uh, and everyone, you know, all the important people in the village stood up and said, yes, you are here from America. We're very happy you're here. And at the back of the this tent were the three women who were throwing shade at everyone, throwing shade on me. You know, they were just like, who are these people? And Steve's camera kind of turned to them. And Steve was like, these three women are back chatting us. They're the ones we need. They're, they're not the true believers. They're the ones who are really ready to speak their minds. And one of those three women was Anita, and she agreed for, for us to follow her around for a few years. And so that's, that's how we met. In and of itself, there's some, some things we can glean from that, that don't always listen to the loud voices that want you to feel good about yourself. Often listen to the dissenters, the ones in the back of the room who are maybe not buying in completely to what you're doing, because there's a high probability that you can learn a lot more from them. And in this case, end up finding a new star to your documentary, which was pretty spectacular. Now explain a little bit. I had the, the great fortune of being able to see this, this wonderful film a uh, number of months back. But share a little bit about why climate change is so important to Anita and her community. Anita and her community are, you know, she lives in a village of like 500 people. Uh, the village is called Wabwa, uh, and it's way in the north of Malawi. And they are farmers who grow food without any irrigation. So they're dry land farmers. They depend on the rains and nothing else to be able to keep their you know, soil fertile and, and keep their crops alive. Having successfully taken on everything from the scourge of HIV AIDS to gender inequality, and you know, they've diversified their farming systems, they've got great crops coming out of the ground. The problem that they're facing increasingly, they say, is climate change. 
And that's because, you know, they, they for generations have had farming systems that reliably had rain in certain years, uh, sort of months of the year. And it would, you know, you would have variation around it, but it wouldn't, it would be, it would be fairly predictable. And now all those augers have gone, all the seasons are, are kilter and they need help. Uh, they, they need us in the global north to take it much more seriously than we do. And uh, they, you know, they recognize that they've done very little to cause climate change. I mean, the, the first thing that they did was, of course, blame themselves. And they're like, oh, is it because we chopped trees down? Well, we needed the trees for firewood, um, and that's why we chopped them down. But sh should we not have chopped them down? And, you know, yes, uh, there's a certain amount of deforestation that's happened, but nothing close to this kind of scale that would actually precipitate climate change. Uh, and in fact, they've been trying to replant trees, and they can't because the climate now doesn't uh, hold, you know, give enough rain at the right times of year for these trees to regrow. So they're wondering what they can do. And since it's not really their fault that there's climate change, because, you know, Malawi has a, a tiny, tiny sliver of a carbon footprint compared to us in the United States, the, the real solution for them is not to cut back on their carbon footprint because they've got none. Uh, the, their real solution has to be, you know, to adapt, which they're doing. Uh, they invent, they've invented things like a, something called a climate change stove, which uh, reduces their uh, need for wood from, you know, needing a new bundle of wood every couple of days to needing a bundle of wood every couple of weeks. You know, it's an amazing innovation. And they, they did that. But they also need us to do our bit. And that's that's why uh, Anita wanted to come to America, was uh, to persuade us that, you know, it's, it's not fair that she suffers for our indulgence uh, in terms of climate change. In a world that's so quick to blame everybody else, I love that part about Anita and I love that part about her community is that the first place that they looked was at what they're, what are we doing to cause this to happen? Once they looked at that and made some adjustments on their end, it wasn't until after that, that then Nita's attention went elsewhere and started asking, well, what can other people do now? You got Anita all the way and she'd never been to the United States. She'd never been much of anywhere. And she comes to the United States and what types of people did you introduce her to? And did she have conversations with? Anita has a theory of change that she talks about in the book, which is if you go to someone's doorstep with your problem, they cannot ignore you. And so, and that's the way you make change happen in her world. You, you see it when she goes to the doorstep of this you know, chauvinist guy. Uh, you see it when she goes to help people. She goes to their doorstep there. She's part of their lives. She's inescapable and problems get resolved that way. We had hoped to bring her to the doorstep of the big polluters. We had hoped to bring her to the doorstep of the US government. We had hoped to bring her to, to many, you know, to, to see large farms and to see concentrated animal feeding operations. None of those people would have us on their doorstep. We, we even tried, you know, the Gates Foundation, this you know, organization that claims to be championing the rights of farmers in the global South. You know, Bill Gates is America's largest farmer. He owns more farmland than any other farmer in America. He didn't want to talk to us either. So in the end, we ended up talking to small scale farmers, sustainable farmers, essentially sort of friends of my friends who are all, you know, Aggies and foodies of various kinds. And in that journey in Wisconsin, they uh, stop off to, to see my very good friend, friends, uh, Jim and Rebecca Goodman, who Jim is the president of the National Family Farm Coalition. Uh, I, I can't remember how many generations dairy farming has been in his family, but they've, they've been at it for a while. You know, we, we visit uh, farmers in Iowa and then, you know, we, we travel from uh, the heartland. Uh, to the West and East Coast to meet farmers, particularly farmers of color in California and in Detroit and in Maryland. 
And you, you get a sense of in that journey of, of Anita's faith. I mean, you know, this, she uses the language of faith to talk with Christian farmers overwhelmingly, uh, particularly in the Midwest, but uses that language to talk about how, you know, how we live under God's creation and you know, to raise the question of what God wants us to do, what, what duties we owe creation, whether this, these are the end times and whether we can do what we like or whether uh, we owe it to next generations to leave the world as good as we found it. Yeah. And one of the things that I found interesting about the people that she talked to is even though you know she was talking to smaller scale farmers who may have had an ideology closer to yours or hers, there was still a fair amount, at least from a couple of the conversations, there was a fair amount of resistance, but kind of the, the beautiful arc of the story is you do, you do come back to these farmers towards the end of the film. And at least some of them have had, at least I'll say an adjustment in their thinking after meeting Anita, which I think that alone shows that her her mission was accomplished, even if just in the lives of those few people. The, the key idea here is one that may surprise people, um, because you know here we are living in the United States, and we're, we're told that we've never been more divided. But there's a moment in the film where uh, you know one of the the young farmers or one of the farm workers is arguing back. Uh, against Anita and her mentor, Esther, who comes along with her. And after this argument, it, it doesn't look like there's going to be any progress. It doesn't look like there's going to be any transformation. And what, what you know, Esther says, no, 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 this is great. That young boy who was talking to us uh, and arguing back, he's the one who will change. Change begins with denial. And I've been sitting with that for a bit, um, mm. because the idea that change begins with denial at some level doesn't feel right here in this divided America. But what, what Anita and Esther were telling me was, uh, actually, look, we've lived through so, so many seasons of change, right? We, when HIV AIDS was breaking across uh, Southern Africa in the 1990s, people didn't originally believe it. They thought it was a conspiracy. But the more they argued back, the more that we could argue back. And so before they wouldn't even argue, then they argue. And that's a, a sort of moment of change. When you have that friction, they're at least listening. And similarly, you know, men used to dismiss us out of hand and then they started arguing back. And that's when we knew that there was going to be some traction. And this climate change stuff, when people were pretending it wasn't there, that's when it's hardest. But when they're arguing back, that feels like progress. And, you know, Gandhi had this apocryphally attributed to him line about first they ignore you, uh, then they laugh at you, then they fight you, then you win. And that idea of being ignored and then mocked and then engaged with, and then, and then you, you ultimately triumph, is the same idea, right? That change begins with denial. If you're you know, in, initially being ridiculed, then that's, that's already progress. Because one of the least successful examples of change was when Anita and Esther were not argued back against, but they were pitied by mm -hmm. some folks in the, in the United States. And pity is the opposite of change. Pity is what you do instead of changing. When you pity someone, when you when you go, oh, it's awful what's happening in Africa, it's really bad, and then you stop at that, if you feel like you've dispensed your sort of spiritual ob obligation by just commiserating and saying, oh, I feel very bad for you, that is the opposite of being ready to change, ready to reflect on what it is that you owe, what it is that your duties might be. If pity is the work, uh, then the work is no good. You know, it's great to have a documentary like what you produced. It's great to have these conversations. If the answer isn't to go to our local farmers markets and eat a lot of kale while listening to jangly guitar music, 
what, <laughs> what are some of the things that we should be thinking about that we should be considering? I think there's more and more people every single day that are taking this seriously. I think it's the exact same situation that you already mentioned that uh, Anita encountered that I think we did get all of this resistance toward climate change. And then now we're starting to see slowly, but surely this, this kind of turn of more and more people understanding that this is actually reality for the everyday person like myself living in Northern Wisconsin, not engaged in high level amounts of work on climate change. Like you are, what are things that we should be thinking about? What are things that we should be doing? First of all, again, from the film, some advice that we got from Anita and Esther was don't feel guilty. Guilt accomplishes nothing. And also don't put it all on yourself in terms of like consumer behavior. I mean, again, I like kale. I could take or leave the guitar music, but we can we can we can argue that out <laughs> later on. That. But, you know, the big changes that have happened in this country or in any country that have made a difference in people's lives have never been accomplished through individual consumer behavior. You know, the late great Desmond Tutu, when he was being asked about how to you know, confront apartheid in South Africa, you know, yes, there was a boycott of um, South African produce and wine. And he's like, yeah, OK, we can do the bare minimum, which is not buy into certain of the worst practices. But actually, uh, we need to educate one another. We need to form communities of solidarity. And we need to organize together. Uh, and there are some terrific organizations around the United States, for instance, uh, that are bringing together communities of faith with environmental action, green faith, for instance. But, you know, there are, uh, if you go to 350.org or if you go to the, to, to the Sunrise Movement, you'll find an incredible community of people right near you right now who are ready to take the, the big organizing steps we need, not merely to persuade uh, local, state and federal governments we need to be doing more, which we do, but also to be building the alternatives. You can't build the alternative by yourself. I mean, sure, you can go you know, solarize your roof and you know, stick up a wind turbine. Do, do, you know, th th there are certain things that, again, at an individual level, perhaps you can be doing uh, and consuming less, of course, is important. If you are free to do that, that's great. But if you're you know, working and you've been gentrified out of town and you know, driving uh, a vast commute is the only choice you have to be able to get a, a living wage, then I'm not the person to be saying, well, you know, you shouldn't be commuting so far and you shouldn't be using so much gasoline. I'm not that guy. I think that we find ourselves constrained by the world in which we find ourselves. And the only way out of it is not to stop blaming ourselves, but to understand there are structural forces that put us in this position, but also that we can change. It was fascinating to me. You and I were driving in a car out in LA not too long ago. And I remember we were having a conversation about electric cars and you had made the statement in that during that car ride that I don't think the answers are in electric vehicles. I think the answer more lies in the way that we think about food and farming. It, it feels like there's so much conversation about cars and transportation but maybe not as much conversation about food and farming. And I could be wildly out of place by saying that, but I guess just what I hear through the media outlets that I listen to, there's a lot more articles about electric cars than there are about proper farming techniques. So share a little bit about what you meant when you said that. I'm very suspicious of Elon Musk for so many reasons. I mean, I, you know, I, I just from the fact that I don't think billionaires should exist uh, to the fact that when people point out that the lithium in his car batteries come from, from parts of the world that have been destabilized by American coups, he, he, he tweets back, we will coup who we want, which is grammatically dodgy, but also ethically not great. <laughs> Thermodynamically, if everyone bought a Tesla tomorrow, 
we would still have climate change. Merely shifting the way that we commute from one kind of individualism to another is not the solution that we need. I mean, some of the farmers that we met in the United States are organic farmers, not because of an abundance of care for farm workers, for example. For me, I eat organic food, not because my body is a temple, but because I don't want farm workers to be polluted by pesticides. Uh, And that's really the best reason to be uh, interested in organic food. It's not because your body is some sort of pillar of purity. Uh, It's because there are so many people whose bodies are damaged and broken by exposure to pesticides. But if you're in it, for yourself, then that's a mode of engaging with your behavior and the environment that is narcissistic. It's not about community change. It's not about saving the planet. It's just about making sure that you and you've got yours and you're fine. And that's the same kind of thinking around automobilism, around uh, this idea that, you know, if only we you know, have our little battery packs, uh, everything's going to be fine. You know, we, we want to keep everything the same while saying we want to change everything. And you've you, you got to pick one. Uh, and I pick changing things. And electric cars are a technology for keeping things kind of the same. You know, we, we still have the roads. We still have the long commutes. We have this, that and the other. Sure, we have a little less in terms of fossil fuel. Someone else will buy that. Um, but, you know, we still keep the plastics. We keep, still keep all of that stuff. So I, I do think that, you know, if we're thinking about changing the world, uh, you know, more public transport, more dense urban areas where we can have public transport, more c- connecting to each other through food. And, and yeah, if we're interested in climate change, then you know, by many measures, the food system emits much more in terms of human-generated climate change greenhouse gases than the automobile sector does. So let, let's start with that. Let's, let's look at where the big changes need to happen and look at the way in, ways in which we can start rebuilding our soils and rebuilding how it is that we feed one another uh, without the rhetoric of America needs to feed the world. The rest of the world can feed itself. But we need to start thinking a little closer to home about how it is we want to transform the way that we interact with the web of life, because it's doing us far more harm than good uh, to carry on in the path we are. And I appreciate that. What you said there is really, before we even consider how we should go about this, we have to get outside of our kind of individualistic mindset because the answer is going to come in context of community. You share that what we do individually only matters so much, but if we rally as a community and then rally even larger than that, that's where we're going to see the true change. And so really the first thing that we have to do is find some humility in ourselves. Those of us who are listening to this in America, we have to buck this individualized American culture in order to be the change that that we all so desperately hope to see. Now, this documentary isn't the only thing you do. I know you also recently came out with a book called Inflamed. Give us a little bit of a idea of what that book is about and what you were tackling in, in that project. Well, thank you, Matt. I mean, I, I worked with a friend who's a, a medical doctor, uh, Rupa Maria is her name, and uh, she, she and I w- were just, you know, she, she comes at the problems of inflammation by seeing uh, in the hospital people coming up with so many inflammatory diseases, not just sort of asthma and type 1 diabetes, but type 2 diabetes, heart disease, even Alzheimer's is being understood as an inflammatory disease. And of course, COVID uh, is made much worse by inflammation, by what we're understanding as cytokine storms, a range of things. So she sees disease happening in one way, and I you know, work in the food system and see it happening in different ways. The only civilization that thinks that food and medicine are separate is this one. In, in every other human civilization, food and medicine are really part of the same thing. And what we're trying to do in Inflamed is show not just how our bodies and our communities and our planet is inflamed, uh, but 
understand what it is we might do to heal. Uh, what sort of deep medicine do we need in order to be able to heal the wounds of the past um, and heal our bodies at the same time? And Inflamed is a kind of how-to guide, uh, not only to understand how we should diagnose our world a little better, but what it is that we can do to take action. Now, when I hear you say that, now all of a sudden it feels like the conversation comes back to what Matt has to do with his body. So how do we also take this in kind of a corporate sense? Like, as it seems to be a bit of your mission is to get us working together corporately to tackle these things. How do we look at what you talk about in Inflamed and have maybe that same type of mindset? The reason for our inflammation is really about our disconnection from the web of life that sustains us. And again, you're right. This gets us back to this idea of, my faith. And the more that I spend time thinking about and meditating on how it is that I want to live and where I find you know, a sort of spiritual connection to the world around me, it is through the living web of life that surrounds me. Uh, and uh, so, you know, in terms of, you know, ways of, of connecting, part of the, the ideas that we have in Inflamed is to recognize, look, there are beings under our fingernails. There, there are beings in the soil, even in the frozen soil, uh, that, that we can and should be connected with. Um, our health in terms of you know, even our, our internal microbiome, you know, the, the, the millions, the trillions of organisms within us uh, and within our stomachs are not necessarily all human. And the, the beings are on our skin. The beings are around us. You know, we're surrounded by non-human living things that are connected to us on which our life depends. And we've done a very good job in, in the North, uh, you know, in, in rich countries of exterminating all of those things. And we're suffering the consequences. If we're going to heal, then recognizing those things for the first time, recognize them as living beings on which on, on whom we depend and whom we can care for in turn is a way of extending our care, not just beyond Matt's body, but to the world that keeps Matt alive, the worlds of care, of love, of community that buoy us up. And that, that idea is something that you can access through a, a, a sort of broad spirituality. And that's, that's why an inflamed, that's, that's a, an exploration that I'm, I'm excited to be, to be going down and I'm, I'm an exploration. I'm, I'm really just taking baby steps to, um, to, to, to be able to fathom out, but perhaps when we have a conversation in a few years from now, Matt, um, I'll, I'll have better answers for you. I'm sure people are, are wanting to know how they can watch the ants and the grasshopper. So how can somebody find out about the movie or actually watch the documentary? If you go to antsandgrasshopper.org, um, you'll be able to find uh, that there is actually a link for, for churches in particular. And uh, we're rolling out a big strategy, particularly in North America, around finding and working with uh, not just evangelical communities, but a range of, of uh, specifically Christian communities uh, in, in North America to host screenings. If you'd like to be a part of that, and if you'd like to learn more, there's a Bible study and a range of other things that we've got on the website. But um, yeah, antsandgrasshopper.org is the place to go. Now, Raj, from a person who doesn't identify as a Christian or, or even somebody who identifies as any specific religion, why are you rolling this out so specifically to Christian church communities? Because Anita wants us to. The goal of this film was always to put Anita in the driving seat. And she has called, she, she's made a, a series of very specific calls. She wants all of Americans to become activists for climate change, but she has a very specific language that she uses. And it's a language of prophets that has a particular resonance in Christian communities. Um, and that's what she wants. She's a very, she's an incredibly devout woman. And 
she wants to see this word spread as a gospel. And so I'm, I'm just doing her bidding because I have such privilege at my disposal. It's not my job to say, oh, no, you've got it all wrong. Uh, she, she's made a call and the very least I can do is answer. As we bring it home today, I think oh, there's so much that we could learn from this interview. But the most important thing is that this has to start with us and our perspective. If our perspective is solely focused on ourselves and how this is good for us or maybe just us and our family, well, that's only going to do so much good. Sure, it's going to be good for us, but is it truly going to be good for our community and for our world as a whole? As Raj was sharing, one of the most important things we can do is organize with other people in our community who have the same passion and same desire because there's still a lot of work that needs to be done in simply educating people around this issue of hunger, around this issue of climate change in our world. So get involved, go beyond just yourself and find ways to organize with other people to make a difference in this world. That's something that's not just true when we talk about climate change and hunger, but that's true when we talk about anything. Step one is getting outside of ourselves. We live in a culture that does not do that well. We live in a culture that promotes self over and over and over again. But Christianity and most of the religions of the world promote humility and others first. And as soon as we start there, that will be the moment when there's hope to tackle some of these issues that are greatly affecting our world. Of course, special thanks to Raj for being on the show today. To learn more about the film The Ants and the Grasshopper, go to antsandgrasshopper.org. Also, if you want to know more about what Raj is up to, or if you want to check out any of his books, make sure you go to rajpatel.org. That's R-A-J-P-A-T-E-L, and I'll have all of those links in the show notes. Of course, if you want to support this podcast, be sure to subscribe to it. Give it a five-star rating and write a review. You can find me on Facebook and Instagram at Matt Kinzera. The website is mattkinzera.com. And as always, let's continue to chase goodness together.